Let's pray before we start this morning. Our Father, we love you. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning with a desire to know you better, a desire to grow closer to you, to be more of what you'd have us to be. Father, we ask you today to work in our lives and and God, just show us things that aren't as they should be. Show us changes that we need to make, areas that we need to fix. Let our hearts and our minds and our desires be in line with your will and your word and your want for our lives. I ask you today to fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech as I speak your word. That I can speak the things that you had once spoken that I would not be a hindrance in any way. I love you. praise you. And I ask this in the precious name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can tell a lot about a person by finding out what their desires are. Our desires are often the focus of our lives. The kind of appetite we have, it reveals a great deal about our character. A strong desire that comes from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life says quite a bit about us. In the same way, a strong desire for things that are righteous, holy, and true also says quite a bit about us. You could almost say that our desires define us. The things we desire the most are the things we pursue the most. The things we pursue the most define who we are and what we do. This is true whether our desires are for right things or for wrong things. What are the things that the believers should Desire. Today what I want to do is looking at various passages, talk about some desires that we as believers should have. I also want to answer why it is we should have these particular desires. And, and there's three that I'm going to show. And I want to put them in the form of a question because I want this to kind of be an evaluation for ourselves. As we look at this, we should ask ourselves, do I desire these things the Bible says I should desire? So number one. Do I desire righteousness? You know, in a lot of ways, as a general rule, healthy appetite reflects a healthy person, right? So I'm pretty healthy right now in my life. Uh, And in the same way, someone has a lack of an appetite, there's usually something that's wrong. Well, what's true in the physical world is also true in the spiritual world. An appetite or a desire for righteousness is a sign that our, our faith is strong, That our souls are healthy and our relationship with Jesus is growing. In the same way, a lack of a desire for righteousness or or a desire for unrighteousness is a sign that things are not as they should be in our relationship with Christ. Things are not as they should be in our souls and in our spirits and in our hearts. For Jesus says that every disciple of his, every believer should desire righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The idea of hungering and thirsting, it is a, a desire, a strong desire for things that are, that, that are righteous. Right? It is a, the kind of desire that the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 42, when he said he was like a deer that panted for the streams of water. Right? It's the kind of desire that David spoke of in Psalm 63 when he said that, that nothing else really satisfied him other than God. It's the kind of desire spoken of in the psalm I read at the beginning of service where he said, My heart and my flesh cry out. 
Right? It is a desire that cannot be satisfied by just anything. It is a desire that is satisfied by one thing in specific. And that is righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Now, when you study out the Sermon on the Mount and you look at what Jesus said, the kind of righteousness we should have. It is a, a, a double portion of righteousness, so to speak. Right? We should have a desire to be righteous. And we should have a desire to do righteous. And that is important. Because it's easy for us to get caught up in wanting one or the other, but not both. Right? A lot of people, they want to be righteous. Right? They like the idea that if there is an eternity, they will go to be with God in a place called heaven. They think the alternative seems bad, and so they don't want to go there. They want to be with God. They want to be accepted there. But they really don't want to live in a way... That demonstrates they know Jesus. They want to be righteous, but not do righteous. Then there are those that they want to do righteous, but they don't really want to be righteous. They want to do good things. They want to be a good neighbor. They want to have good morals. They want to be a good spouse, a good parent. They want to be generous and kind. And they want to point to that and say... I know I'm going to heaven because look at the good deeds that I do. I don't need Jesus to be good. They want to do righteous. They do not want the righteousness that comes from Christ. The This may be a long service. The righteousness that the disciple of Christ desires is both. We want to be righteous and we want to do righteous. The promise is... That those who desire those things will be filled with those things. Now, one of the problems I've often had with teaching on being righteous or doing righteous or what we often call just holiness is that too many times it's put off as a, a burden to bear. I've heard it explained in ways and, and I've heard people say that the, what they felt is that the choices they have in life are to either be holy or to be happy. But you can't really be both. If you want to be happy in life, you're going to have to do things the Bible says are not right. And if you want to be holy, well, it's just like the death of joy and happiness and fun. Now, I'm convinced that is wrong on on a lot of different levels. The Bible is clear That there is the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore in the presence of Christ. Those that have experienced God and have hungered and thirst for righteousness, they found a joy that the world could not compete with. They found a pleasure that the world could not take away. They found things that were better than what the world offered. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness because it, it keeps us close to God. I mean, that is the thing. See, a hunger for righteousness is really just a a hunger for God. Because look at what the Bible says. The Apostle John said, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Right now, what the light represents holiness, righteousness, purity, truth, all, all that is good. And that is God. The darkness represents sin and wrong and all that is bad. The Bible says that there is no darkness in God. So we have a choice in life. We can walk in light with God or we can walk in the darkness away from God. But we can't do both at the same time. And John was... 
kind of a guy that would say things in a way that I probably wouldn't. He said, if someone says they're walking in the light or they have a close relationship with God while they're walking in darkness, he said, they're lying and do not practice the truth. So why do we desire righteousness? We desire righteousness because we love God. We have experienced the goodness and the grace of Almighty God. And we know that sin keeps us from that experience of God. We know that sin hurts our relationship with God. We know that if I do these things, it separates me from God in my life on a practical level. And, and God is better than the stuff that it, I'm doing. That I love God more than I love the sin. That I want God more than I want these other things. And because I love God, I will separate myself from things that hinder my relationship with God. And, and we do this in a lot of areas. Right? I mean, think about your marriage. There are, I know with, I love my wife. And I want a close relationship with her. And there are things that I could do that hurt that relationship. And there are things that I can do that help and better that relationship. So because I love her, I choose not to do the things that she doesn't want me to do that hurt our marriage, that hurt our relationship. And I choose to do those things that strengthen our marriage and draw us closer together. Now, she would probably say I don't do either nearly enough, and that would probably be true. But I try. Because I love her and I want to be close with her. She is better than these other things. I would rather have her than this other stuff. So I let the other stuff go to have a close relationship with her. If I do that in the relationship with my wife, it makes sense that I would do that in the relationship with my God. He is better than sin. The joys He gives me are better than the joys of the world. The pleasures He gives are better than the pleasures the world offers. Therefore, I will do what I can to forsake sin and pursue holiness. I desire righteousness. Not so that I can say I'm better than others. I do not desire righteousness so that I can say, look at how good I am and look at all that I've done. I desire righteousness because I desire God. And I know that unrighteous acts hurt my relationship with God. Keep me from being as close to Him as I should be. And keep me from experiencing His goodness and His grace in my life. Therefore, I desire righteousness. So that I can be closer to God. Do you have a desire for righteousness in your life, a desire to, to be righteous and a desire to do righteous. Secondly, do I desire God's Word? God's Word is always going to be central to our lives. And it is something that we are supposed to desire just as we desire righteousness. Look at how Peter says it. It's newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And the idea is really that verse 3, the last part, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious, it, it explains verse 2, the first part. Since we have tasted the Lord is gracious, then we desire the milk of the word. Those that have been born again, 
come to know the goodness, the greatness, the grace of God. They desire the word of God. And he says they were to describe desired as as newborn babes. And I, I like that image. And I think it gives us a, a good picture of the kind of desire we should have. Right. It, it gives an intense desire. Right? It gives us a, a specific desire. Right? Think about it. Have you ever had a newborn or been around a newborn? Right? You know that they can go from happy to hungry in just that quick. And when they go from happy to hungry, you know it, right? Kids, little babies, they don't just kind of raise their hand and say, I would like something to eat. They express their displeasure with your not feeding them. Loudly, repeatedly, consistently, until they get it. Right? And if you've ever had a baby that was crying out like that, you know that they don't, they don't want you to rock them at that point. They could care less. They don't want you to come down and say, oh, aren't you the cutest little baby? They don't care. They want one thing. They want food. They will not shut up until they get it. But when they do, the world is a better place. That is the kind of desire we are to have for God's word. Right? It is a, an, an almost an all-consuming desire. It is a, a deep, passionate desire. But it is also a very specific desire. Right? It is, let me be careful here. It's not a desire for Christian books. It's a desire for God's word. Right? And, and I love Christian books. I, I read books all the time. I have several authors that I truly think are great. But they cannot take the place of God's word in my life. There should be a hunger, a thirst, a great desire for the word of God. The, the undiluted, pure word of God. And, and I want to kind of gently express another point that goes along with this. When we read this, we tend to think that means that just refers to wanting to read the Bible, study it. Right? Because if you have a Bible, hold it up. Now, how many of us, this is the only Bible we own, is the one we have here today? Probably not many of us. Now, how many, Scott, how many Bibles do you have on your little dilly walker there? As many as he wants, right? Your, our, our little computer things have every version of the Bible that's ever been written. And we can have them at the access. And because we have such ready access to God's Word, we see things like this and we think, oh, that means I should desire to study it for myself. And... Make no mistake, you should. That should be a part of the desire. But let's not forget the context that Peter wrote in. When Peter wrote that, people did not have personal copies of God's Word. The church, if they were lucky, had copies of God's Word. And to hear God's Word to satisfy that craving, they had to come to church and hear the Word of God taught to them. So a part of the desire for God's Word is a desire for personal study. I should desire to be in it for myself. But there should also be a desire to, to be in the place where God's Word is preached, where God's Word is taught in our lives. That is a part of the desire for it. I mean, what is our, what is our desire about coming to church? Is it a, 
I get to go and study God's word and worship God and be with my brothers in Christ? Or is it, I guess I better go or people might talk. Right? I mean, why do we come? There should be a desire to be here, to study God's word, to worship God. The question, though, we want to answer is, is why? Why should I have this desire for God's word? Well, the Bible gives us several reasons for that. One is that God's word shows us our Savior. Jesus said, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. One of the truths that's so easy for us to miss is that there is only one star in the Bible. Right? There, is, there is one person that is the star of the show. It's God. Now, God has this amazing list of supporting characters. Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Paul, David, and others. But in the end, the story of the Bible is the story about God. It's the story of a God who creates the world and puts people on it. It's the story of a God who, when those people rebel against Him and do what He says not to do, He begins to work to bring a Savior into the world. It's the story of a God who, who chooses a people that, to be, that will be the, the people that the Savior will come through. And then He works to protect those people, to make them holy and dedicated to Him, so that they can be a light in the world to the, the goodness and the greatness of God. It's the story of a God who will one day send a Messiah, a Savior, into the world to redeem man and to, to fix what went wrong in the garden. It's the story of, of Jesus who is the Messiah that God was going to send. So from the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. He's coming. The New Testament is about the Gospels. It's about Jesus. He's come. Acts through Jude are about Jesus. This is what it means now that Jesus has come, died, and risen, and gone back. Even Revelation is about Jesus. It's about the fact that the world is evil, but in the end He wins, and those who are devoted to Him get to take part in it. See, I desire Scripture, because Scripture reveals Jesus to me. Anytime anyone asks me, how can I have a closer relationship with God? Or how can I know Jesus better? I always tell them the same thing. Read your Bible. Be in places where the Bible is preached and taught. Because if it doesn't eventually get to Jesus, you're doing it wrong. The Bible reveals our Savior. And if I want to know the one that has redeemed me, I need to be in the Word that's about Him. So I desire that. Secondly, God's Word teaches us how to live for God. When you begin to read Scripture, one of the things you find is that the people of God are meant to live different than the people who don't know God. There's meant to be a difference in the life of a believer and an unbeliever. And in a lot of ways, it's not natural the way that Christians are supposed to live. Right? Because culture in the world says certain things are okay, but God says certain things are not okay. Right? It's not intuitive on how to live for the Lord, especially if you were not raised in church. So how do we know what God would have us to do or not do? Well, we study the Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God 
It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the Bible is inspired by God. People, men, wrote it down, but God guided them on what to say. And because God is the ultimate author of Scripture, it is profitable. It is, it is our guide in things. Right? It, is our, it is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine is what we believe. What we believe about life, about relationships, about salvation, about eternity, about God, about Jesus, uh, about, about everything. And so the Bible was given. It is profitable to teach us what to believe about these things. The Bible is profitable to teach us what to believe about morality, about standards, about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. About all of the things that we need to know, the Bible is profitable to teach us what to believe about these things. But, at times we're not going to believe the right things. At times we're going to have these wrong ideas that are culturally ingrained. And so the Bible is profitable for reproof. Reproof is pointing out areas that are wrong. Reproof is when you're reading the scripture and it says something and you go, huh, that's not what I thought. I've never believed that way before. And then you have a choice to make. Will I believe Scripture? Will I believe myself? Will I have confidence in God? Or will I have confidence in culture? Right? It, it, it points out areas of our doctrine, of our beliefs that are wrong. It points out wrong thinking. It points out wrong living. It points out wrong understanding of God, salvation, Jesus, and eternity. It, it reproof. It reproves us. And the idea there is really that it's often sharp. Right? I mean, because God's conviction at times is pretty tough. And that's what it's for. To point out when we're wrong. To get our attention. But, God's word is not just a negative Nelly. Right? Have you ever known a negative Nelly? Right? These are people... That they can tell you what's wrong, but they can't tell you how to fix what's wrong. They have the spiritual gift of criticism, but not fixing anything. Right? They, they won't work to fix it, and they don't have an idea of how to fix it. They just know what's wrong. God's Word is not a negative Nelly. It does point out what's wrong, but is also profitable for correction. It says, here's what you believe, and that's wrong. Here's what you should believe instead. Here's what you're doing, and that's wrong. Here's what you should be doing instead. It is profitable for correcting us so that we can be instructed in righteousness. To show us how to live in a way that is righteous. So that we can be righteous, and that we can do righteous. So that we can not make the same mistakes over and over again. And it does this so that we will be thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work that God may have for us. There are a lot of good books on how to share the gospel out there. But if you know the Bible, you are better prepared to share the gospel than if you have read every book on evangelism there is. There are good books on how to have a good marriage. But if you just do what the Bible says in your marriage... That is far better than any book on marriage could ever possibly be. Any good work that God wants you to do, you can be equipped to do it by taking heed to God's word. 
God's word teaches us how to live for God. And so we desire it. But not only that, God's word transforms us. I mean, this whole series we're doing is on transformation, being changed, becoming the me that we're meant to be. Well, how do we how do we change? How do we grow? Well, again, we go back to Peter. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. See, a baby needs certain kinds of food to grow healthy and strong. Malnourishment is a problem. Malnourishment is a problem for new believers as well. The way to go from a a brand new believer in Jesus Christ to a mature believer in Jesus Christ is through the Word of God. Right? Because as it does the things we've been talking about, as it shows us our Savior, as it teaches us how to live, God will work through that. And He begins to show us this is wrong and this is right. As we make changes, we grow. We begin to become more and more like Jesus. We begin to learn how to share the gospel, how to relate to people, how to, how to talk to people about Jesus, how to relate to, to other people in our lives in a way that commends Christ rather than cause a stumbling block against Christ. We grow through the Scripture. A believer wants to be like Jesus. And the Bible is the book God has given to teach us how to do that. And so we, we desire God's Word. It should be a, a growing, consistent hunger in our lives. And then the final question. Do I desire the salvation of the lost? In the army, we, I was an in infantryman. And we would always tell people that there are two kinds of people in the army. There are the infantry and there are those who support the infantry. And our point behind that was that in the end, battles are won by boots on the ground. At some point, boots on the ground have to clear the buildings, have to take the bad guys, have to do what needs to be done. The boots on the ground are infantry soldiers. And once the infantry soldiers go in, everybody else's job is to make sure they have everything they need to make sure that they can be successful in their mission. In a lot of ways, the church has one primary mission and everything else supports it. That primary mission is to go and make disciples of all nations, or as we tend to say here, to lead people to follow Jesus. That's the big idea. That's the main goal of what the church exists to do. And really, everything else we do is a supporting mission for that one main goal. To go and make disciples of all nations. To reach the lost. Help them come to know Jesus Christ. And this is, this is a mission not for you know, some nebulous entity called the church. This isn't the mission for preachers and missionaries and, and other pastors. This is the missionary for all who call upon Jesus for salvation. If we have experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, we want to help others experience this salvation as well. Paul expresses his desire in several ways. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. His great desire was that his countrymen, his people, the Jews, would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. His desire for them to be saved was so strong that he said, I tell the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I could be for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to flesh. His desire for them to be saved was so strong that he said, if I could, I would go to hell that they could go to heaven. 
Right? I would forfeit my salvation that they could experience this salvation. That's a, that is a strong burden, desire for people to be saved. But his desire for the lost wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Greeks also. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Right? Well, the gospel for which I suffer trouble is an evildoer, evil the point of change. The word of God is not changed. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ in eternal glory. Right? Paul said, the gospel is what it's all about. And I'm willing to suffer anything, whatever it takes. So that I can help other people come to know Jesus Christ. If it takes me being imprisoned, then so be it. If it takes me suffering, then so be it. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I will do so that I can help others come to know Jesus Christ. There should be a desire in our heart for the salvation of the lost. Now, I don't know that we should say, you know, well, I'm willing to be accursed so that they could be saved because that's not possible. But there should be a hurt, a burden, a willingness to do what it takes to reach people for Jesus Christ. So why should that be such a burden for us? Why should we desire the salvation of the lost? Paul answers the question. He says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In this passage, it gives us three truths about why we should desire the salvation of the lost. Number one is that God desires the lost to be saved. But verses before that talk about praying for others. That's good because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If God's great desire... It's not for a particular party to win the next presidential election. God's great desire is not for the Supreme Court to rule in a certain way. God's great desire is for the lost to be saved. I mean, that, that is the number one priority that God has for the world. Take some time today or this week and read Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, Jesus tells a series of stories about some lost coins, some lost sheep and a lost son. And the point of them all is the same. That God rejoices when what is lost is found. That, that God desires the lost to be found just the way a shepherd desires one of his sheep who's lost to be found. God desires the lost to be found in the same way a person who loses their fortune desires it to be found. God desires the lost to be found in the same way that a father who has seen a son go astray desires to see that son come back to the right paths. God's primary desire is that all people would be saved. I mean, you'll never meet anyone that is not important to Jesus. Every one of them is a soul for whom Christ died. Secondly, Jesus is the only hope they have. Right? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So one of the accusations that the church faces regarding evangelism 
is that we're trying to impose our religion over others. That as long as your religion makes you a good person, that they're all basically the same. And so don't say yours is better than others. I'll be honest with you. If they were all the same, basically, we wouldn't have a right to do that. If, if all paths led to God, it would be okay if they went to God some other path than through Jesus. The Bible is pretty clear that there is not multiple ways. There is, there is one God who goes by one name and he has made one path. And that is Jesus Christ, who is the sole mediator, the sole go-between from God to man. Jesus alone takes care of our sin. Jesus alone brings an end to our rebellion. Jesus alone has paid the penalty for our sin. See, when we go out and we invite people to church, and we pray for their salvation, and we share the gospel with them, we are trying to help them in the best way they can because there is only one person who can ultimately and eternally fix what's wrong with them. Jesus is the only hope they have. And it doesn't matter if they're happy and healthy living apart from Christ. They are hell bound and they will suffer for all of eternity apart from Jesus. And that ought to weigh on our hearts always. It doesn't matter if they do righteous. If they have not believed in Jesus to be made righteous. Jesus is the only hope they have. And then finally, Jesus died to save them. Who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus died for them. His death paid the penalty that their sins required as well. His his sacrifice is sufficient to pay the sins of the world. So it doesn't matter what someone has done or where they have been. What Jesus has done on the cross is able to take care of that, is able to forgive them and to bring them into a right relationship with God. But while His sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of all, it is only efficient for those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. No one is automatically saved. They're not saved by secondary means. My kids are not going to be saved because they're my kids. I was not saved because my mom and dad were Christians. Every person must make the choice to repent and believe, put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done for them on the cross. He died to save them, but they must choose Him in order to be saved. It will not accidentally happen. They must hear, they must believe, and they must call on the Lord. And knowing that Jesus died to save them just as He died to save us gives us a great desire for their salvation. So let me ask you this morning, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And if so, do your desires demonstrate this? It is important that we look at our lives in the light of Scripture and see where they don't line up. Let me read you a passage. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, for which he often had trouble, and who did many things, said this to them, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. And that passage is one to think on. Because he says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Is it evident that Jesus is among you? And he doesn't say, have you been baptized? He doesn't say, do you go to church? He doesn't ask, are you generally a good person? And gosh, he really doesn't even ask them, do you profess Jesus with your mouth? He says, does your life demonstrate that Jesus is in you? Does your life demonstrate that Jesus is with you? If not, know that you're disqualified. Know that you're not saved. See, the way we live matters. What we believe informs the way that we live, always. So what we do in our life, that is a great indicator of of what we believe about God, Jesus, salvation, and eternity. So do our lives line up with Scripture? Do we have the desires that the Bible says believers in Jesus Christ should have? Because if they don't, it's important that we see that as a problem. It's important that we take that seriously and don't just brush it off and hope it's going to be okay. Because the Bible says that there will be many who will say, Lord, Lord. We did a lot of things in your name. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. This is not something we can take a chance with. This is something we must be certain about. And since Peter compares those who are newly born again to newborn babies, I'll use babies as an analogy. One of the first signs that there was something wrong with Lizzie was when she stopped desiring food. Her lack of desire for food demonstrated that something was wrong with her. In the same way, a lack of desire for the things Scripture says we should desire demonstrates that something is wrong in our spiritual lives. A lack of a desire for righteousness, for God's Word, for the salvation of the lost, demonstrates that we are not spiritually healthy. It may demonstrate that we have never been born again. If this is the case, then what needs to be done is repent and believe. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. It is a recognition that that you have been wrong about your sin and that God has been right. That you have been wrong about God being okay with your sin and that God has been right that He's not okay with it. Repentance then leads you to turn from that sin, turn to God and ask Him to forgive you for that sin. Trusting that Jesus and what He did on the cross is our only source of righteousness. It is the only hope that we have. Everyone has to start there. There is no new life in Christ. There is no... Becoming the me I'm meant to be, apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. For those that have been born again, a lack of desire demonstrates another problem. It demonstrates that we have slidden back in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Or we may have slidden back through neglect. You know, a lot of times, people that fall back, they don't intentionally just 
turn their backs on Jesus. They just become neglectful. They just stop making it the priority that they ought to. And, and they begin to, to shift away. Do you know a lot of ways we desire what we do? You know, someone runs. After a while, they begin to, to like running. And they, they desire that, and so they, they run. But if they stop running for a period of time and, and get more sedentary, they stop, they lose that desire for running, and they, they gain a desire for setting and, and doing nothing again. So a lot of times, the sliding back is just because we've stopped answering that desire for Jesus and for righteousness and for His Word and for the salvation of others. And so something else has replaced that desire but either way, it's still a spiritual problem. It's something that, that we as believers must repent of. Something we as believers must say, this is a problem. Jesus, fix it. Help me to have the desires I'm supposed to have. So what, do, what does your life say about your desires? What do your desires say about your commitment and your relationship to Jesus Christ? Let's stand as our musicians come forward.